Nicholas Scow is an award-winning journalist and the author of numerous books, including Kill the Messenger and Spooked. This is Nicholas Scow. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, I'm here with Nick Scow. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Great to be here with you. Um, you have written uh, a number of very interesting books, particularly around uh, the drug war. And I wanted to go through uh, some of them with you. In particular, Kill the Messenger, which is this great story about the reporter Gary Webb. Um, and for people who are listening who are totally ignorant, can you explain who, who Gary Webb was and why we care about this person? Yeah, sure. Gary Webb was an investigative reporter uh, in the mid-90s who broke the first major expose on the internet um, th- th- as far as an expose that was uh, attached to a print story that actually simultaneously appeared online that had never happened before. And it, it was a three-day uh, series that made some pretty explosive allegations about the history of, uh, of crack cocaine and it tied this um, it tied this problem to the CIA's involvement in Central America. Now that wasn't something that hadn't been written about before precisely. Many journalists had covered this back during the 1980s during the Iran Contra era. And uh, what Gary did that was new was he made uh, a lot of progress in terms of finding out where a lot of these drugs ended up north of the border once they got here. And in particular, found out that the suppliers of Freeway Ricky Ross, who was a legendary crack kingpin in Los Angeles, uh, had been uh, assisted by the CIA in raising uh, cash for the Contras. And so that was that was a very, <laughs> very explosive story. Now, there were problems with it. Uh, it was, uh, you know, a little bit... Um, uh, explosive in part because of the fact that it it appeared as an article on the website where if you clicked on the San Jose Mercury News newspaper website, what you immediately saw that day, uh, uh, not just a regular masthead, was the image of the CIA's official seal and a person smoking crack cocaine. And so all the major newspapers sort of ignored this, but the African-American community did not, obviously. And it picked up a lot of steam and so that led to protests. And I think Gary was brought out as kind of like a hero to the black community to a certain degree. Um, but at the same time, he was being increasingly attacked in the major newspapers. And so what happened was really unprecedented. No journalist had ever really been subjected to the same sort of orchestrated campaign of all the major elite newspapers in the country with uh, off the record anonymous sources by and large <clears throat> from the CIA and other government um, agencies trying to attack his reporting and then ultimately investigating him and, and really just trying to derail his career, which succeeded unfortunately. And so Kill the Messenger, the book that I wrote, tried to excavate what happened with this story. Um, and then uh, also what happened to him. And it's a very tragic story. Uh, that resulted in him committing suicide. There are, you know, a lot of people that speculate because he ended up shooting himself in the head twice uh, that this was somehow a botched CIA assassination of some kind, um, which I pretty much debunked. That's the first thing that I, that I did in my reporting was talk to people that were familiar with his suicide and, and directly involved. And, 
and recounting the last days of his life. But nonetheless, a very tragic story. And it, it, um, I think it it's being looked back at when the movie came out uh, many years after I wrote the book in 2014, a lot of the newspapers that had attacked Gary actually looked back at their own reporting with a little bit of um, uh, regret for how they handled the situation. Yeah. And you know what? It's, I, I saw some of those um, expressions of regret from some of these papers and uh, I'm curious how you felt about that because when I see it, it's does not erase the bitter taste that you have in your mouth over all this where people basically ganged up on this guy and and you know pushed him to the brink and now here they are years later being like oops sorry right (laughs) well i mean i i think that there's certainly journalists out there that are still um you know, critical of Gary Webb. And, and to a certain degree, you know, the, the criticisms that were raised at the time were fair enough when it had to do with, you know, some of the uh, aspects of the story that turned out to be very difficult to, to elaborate and to confirm. But I mean, they didn't do their jobs at the time. That's the thing. And I got into this um, whole story in the sense that I was an investigator, investigative reporter myself when it came out. And so I was a local reporter covering police, covering the war on drugs in Orange County. And I saw that there were a lot of loose ends to this, a lot of avenues for inquiry. And I I took it upon myself because I was interested in it and because it it seemed like there was a lot more that needed to be um, dug up in this story to really get to the bottom of it. That's what I set out to do. And I couldn't believe when when the LA Times, New York Times, Washington Post came out with these stories, they just kind of dismissed it right off the bat, you know, and they had a lot more resources than I did. And it didn't seem like they were really digging very deep at all. The LA Times went ballistic. I mean, it's really impossible to exaggerate, you know, the level of contempt they had for this or the level of embarrassment it must have caused there and that's something that they finally did acknowledge so when I wrote my book I spoke to the editor that was in charge of it and he kind of admitted that this was complete overkill assigning so many reporters to this story and then having a lot of that really just focus on investigating Gary Webb and not really investigating a lot of the players in the story so um, yes it was a little bit too little too late the the LA Times in particular you know had had written all these stories about freeway ricky ross before gary webb came along and then you know when gary webb exposed the sources of that cocaine they tried to play down their reporting and suggest that freeway rick wasn't really a crack kingpin after all so they finally did admit that that was hypocritical but i mean it sort of goes without saying that it was to begin with so to do so uh, many years after the damage has been done the career has been ruined you know and the person is no longer there to defend themselves it's you know it's not not much to be proud of yeah uh to say it mildly um right so let's talk about then exactly what is Gary Webb alleging that is new? He has two particular suppliers to Freeway Freeway, uh, Rick Ross, who's a major crack dealer in LA. Uh, And these two people are who? Oscar Danilo Blandon and Norwin Manessas. Uh, Norwin Manessas was somebody that was well known to the DEA. He was a major cocaine trafficker and sort of a middleman between the Colombians and uh, and street sales up in the U.S. And so he 
uh, both along with Oscar uh, Blandon had, or Danilo Blandon rather, had been very active in Contra fundraising circles and were well known within the Bay Area as being people that were trying to raise money and, and doing political uh, legwork for fundraising in the United States to try to support the Contra cause. And both were, you know, also drug trafficking at the same time. Manessas, you know, as it turns out, and this is stuff that Gary Webb found out about, had been behind the so-called Frogman case in San Francisco, which I believe was in 1980, 1983. I don't know if that exact year is correct, but I believe that's when it happened. And it was basically uh, a whole bunch of... Uh, frogmen, you know, people swimming with scuba gear and offloading bales of coke in San Francisco Harbor. And so hmm. Manessas was never, you know, he was investigated, but not charged in this. But of course, you know, the, the, the DA agents after the fact talked about how they had never been able to pin anything on this guy. And he always seemed protected. So there was a lot of rumor about that kind of stuff. And, and, um, and it's a that was some of the stuff that that came up in Gary's reporting that was new was also the most difficult and murky aspect of this whole thing, which is it's very difficult to you know to know precisely how much money uh, that was raised by drug sales ever ended up you know buying weapons, for example. Uh, to fight communism in Central America. But what we do know is that the lawyer for the people that were arrested in the Frogman case that were a little bit lower down the ladder than Manassas, the lawyer, you know, uh, ended up getting an assist from the CIA itself, whose lawyer requested that a bunch of cash, tens of thousands of dollars, be returned to the agency because allegedly this was not drug money, but but legitimate <laughs> contra support fundraising cash that the DEA had seized. So, so in other words, what was um, the the thing that set off the wildfire? It seems was that the story was perceived to be saying Gary Webb's you know pieces uh, seemed to be saying that uh, the CIA was deliberately flooding uh, particularly black neighborhoods with crack. Um, what what was his piece uh, actually alleging? Well, that's exactly right. So his piece was actually alleging that the CIA was turning a blind eye to this activity, that it, that it appeared that the agency probably knew about this activity. Um, what I just uh, you know, described certainly suggests that. I mean, if, if you're sending a lawyer to go intervene in, the, in a federal drug prosecution and try to get drug cash <laughs> <laughs> handed back to the agency. That shows a pretty direct role. Um, he was alleging that the agency was just letting this happen, didn't really care one way or the other what was going on. Um, and and the CIA ultimately admitted as much. That's, that's something that's very important to take note of, is that after the story appeared, after Gary Webb had, had been basically fired by his own newspaper, and a lot of people had described this reporting as being discredited, the CIA very quietly at the height of the Monica Lewinsky investigation came out with this explosive report showing that for 15 years it had essentially had a legal agreement with the, with the, with the Justice Department between the heads of both the CIA and the Justice Department saying that the CIA did not have to disclose drug dealing uh, activity by its assets that were involved in Central America. So it was much broader than just a couple of guys in San Francisco, which were the, the people that were, you know, 
uh, at the at the the top of the ladder of the freeway Rick Ross uh, uh, crack ring. It was it was a lot more than that. Um, so the black community uh, had obviously borne the brunt of the impact of the crack cocaine epidemic during the 1980s, um, and it was uh, difficult to to know somebody in the African-American community in places like LA, New York, Chicago, that hadn't been directly affected by this in terms of somebody that was either addicted to crack, um, dead as a result of the, the, the gang violence associated with it, or in federal prison, the, the, the federal print, uh, sentencing guidelines for crack cocaine were extreme. And so it really decimated like an entire generation of African-American people. And so when Gary Webb's story came along, it seemed like the evidence was finally coming in to sort of support what they felt that they had known for a long time. And I think it's unfair to generalize about the reaction, um, the emotional reaction in the black community, but there were many people that certainly took his story a lot further than Gary Webb ever tried to do. And I directly witnessed this when Gary Webb would speak about his article and be booed, in fact, by certain members of the audience when he said that he wasn't alleging that the CIA invented crack cocaine. I mean, people would just argue with him about that because they were so sure that that, that was the case, but he never said that. Unfortunately, this made it all the easier uh, to debunk Gary Webb's reporting because a lot, if you look very closely at the articles, the major series that ran in the LA Times, the Post and the, the New York Times, a lot of it just focused on accusations that he wasn't making that were easy to debunk because there was no yeah. evidence for it. So in other words, what did, what did people, um, within the story itself, what did people try to discredit? Was it the presentation where you, you appear on the website and has the CIA logo and, you know, crack or well, were there certain facts you got wrong? What was it that people tried to poke holes in? Certainly the presentation was like the main thing. Uh, the top you know, a couple hundred words of the story overstated what the, the evidence, uh, you know, indicated. Uh, so it said, you know, that basically that this particular drug ring uh, involving Freeway Ricky Ross, like helped spark the crack cocaine epidemic. Now that's language that I think that if this story had run in the New York Times, for example, or the Post or one of these other newspapers wouldn't have been there. And I think that the major you know, legitimate criticism of the story was the way it was edited, the way it was packaged. And I know in researching this for, the, for my book that there was a lot of back and forth in terms of how to present the story between Gary and his editors. And he was working with a relatively inexperienced team of editors, for example. He didn't have access to the veteran type of, you know, investigator, reporter, editors that you would have at these larger newspapers. So I think that there was like a sense of rivalry between the 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 San Jose Mercury News based in Silicon Valley at the height of the dot-com boom, you know, wanting to make a big explosive series that really grabbed the public view and these elite newspapers. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, just, you know, they, they tried to push it further than the facts, you know, would legitimately allow them to go. And Gary deserves some culpability for this as the writer but in looking at it and looking at it with you know uh, an eye at the big picture in terms of the history of how long he spent working on this story and all the changes that were made to it and who signed off on the final version of it i mean it's clear he's the only person that paid any personal or professional price for this and i you know i was able to speak to some of his editors but not all and certainly 
um, when he was let go, the the newspaper, you know, ultimately, which had defended the work at first out of a sense of pride, had pretty much put all the blame on him. And I was not able to get Jerry Seppos, the executive editor of the paper, who signed off on this story and, you know, really tried to promote it. But then later wrote this, quote unquote, mea culpa, backing away from certain aspects in the reporting, but basically leaving the impression that, you know, they were retracting the piece. And ultimately, it did completely disappear from the Mercury News website. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I was not able to get him to speak to me. So. Here's the thing. It, it's, you know, it's it's a mixed bag because every work of journalism involves these, you know, these arguments within the newsroom about how to present facts. I think what Gary was hoping was that this article, this series of articles would spark other newspapers to jump in with the resources that they had and help advance the story and that the popular, um, um, you know, reaction to this story would create pressure, which indeed it did. I mean, you had the Congressional Black Caucus demanding an investigation. You had the CIA director, John Deutsch, coming out to L.A., <clears throat> pardon me, to South Central L.A. to, to defend <laughs> the agency's conduct. Um, so it did. It did lead to quite the reaction, ultimately, but it, it did not lead to the to the other newspapers really kind of pressuring for bigger answers, which ultimately took a long time to dribble out too little too late and, and that is so surprising to me because as you say very early on in the book you said that something like anyone who bumbles around the drug world long enough will run into whiffs of the cia that you can't really right. seem to do anything about or it's ambiguous enough that you, you, you couldn't write a story about it um it, it, it is part of the reason why this stuff is like really hard to report on is just because you're dealing with uh, groups like the CIA, which are really sophisticated and know how to cover their tracks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, these are organizations, the CIA and, and other intelligence agencies that operate in secrecy. That's the whole reason for what they do is to maintain secrecy. Um, and so uh, the, you know, the activities that they're involved with there's always some sort of plausible deniability. I mean, you have all these people, you know, that have different relationships with the intelligence community that aren't necessarily full-time employees. And so you get terms thrown around like CIA officer, CIA agent. A lot of the general public doesn't even know that there's a huge difference between those two terms. I mean, a CIA officer is a full-time <clears throat> government employee, like an actual spy. Yeah. A CIA agent, which people think is like what I just described is something completely different. That's somebody acting on behalf of the agency in some way or another. Sometimes there are people that are operating on behalf of the agency that don't even know that. There's often also people that claim they're operating on behalf of the agency that may have at some point in the past, but are certainly not, you know, doing so with any like official cover. And so Danilo Blandon, Norman Manassas, the, those types of characters had no direct relationship with the CIA. They were just people that were basically in the orbit of people that were. Now, a big, it, it, it comes down to 
a critical allegation within the story about a meeting in Central America out in the field where Enrique Bermudez, who was a CIA agent, he actually was like a military commander of the Contras and was directly working on behalf of the CIA, which, mind you, created the Contras. This was not something that the CIA were like indirectly involved in. They literally came up with the idea for this. I ultimately interviewed the guy that did it, Dewey Claridge, who passed away not that long after I interviewed him. And he talked all about how he just came up with this idea, you know, of, of hiring all these uh, goons, as he put it, from South America to come up and train whatever, you know, uh, ragtag army they could put together to fight against the Sandinistas. You know, I mean, it was just something the CIA basically put together. So anyways, Webb had, had alleged, uh, or rather Danilo Blandon had alleged that he had spoken with Bermudez at this meeting in Central America and that Bermudez told him the ends justify the means, do whatever you need to do to get the money. And so this was something that may have happened. It may not have happened. Who knows? Who was there? You know, the agency may know more about this than they're letting on, but nobody can say that with any certainty unless the people that were there, you know, weigh in on it, which <laughs> so far hasn't happened obviously, for obvious reasons. But okay. so that's another problem that you inevitably run into when you report on this type of stuff is that there's oftentimes very little to go on other than what people claim happened uh, because I'm, of the level of secrecy. Right. And that's I'm, I'm curious. This is uh, slightly off topic, but on, on the same note of, uh, you know, this level of secrecy. Had you heard about, um, uh, and as well as stories that are hard to report on, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, um, who Alexander Acosta, when he gave him his original plea deal in Florida, said that he was told, and I'm, I'm quoting from Vanity Fair, um, that he belonged to intelligence. Um, is that something that it, it seems like of a similar vein, kind of what you're talking about here? Has that come across your radar at all? The Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's um, the thing. I don't know anything about that. But what 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 I can say is that it does appear that there is some likelihood that Epstein had a lot of intelligence, intel, as it were, on a lot of people. I mean, and, and that Jelaine Maxwell may also have access to that. So who knows what his relation? I don't know anything. I've never heard anything directly about it, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me that somebody like him with access to that level of, you know, celebrity and power would be on the radar screen of, 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 you know, intelligence agencies or, or somehow would be possibly mixed up in that world. But again, this is, you know, I, I don't know that I can't comment directly on that. I'm, you know, my sources aren't, <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't have any sources with direct uh, intelligence on Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, fair, fair enough. I, I was just curious um, if, if you had heard that thing that Alexander Acosta had said, because it does sound, um, it, it just seems like there are all these kinds of loose ends that in, in the case of a guy like Jeffrey Epstein still persist and, and we want there not to be any loose ends. Um, well, th this is obviously why there's a lot of speculation on how he died. I mean, yeah. I don't see that ever going away, probably. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, compared to what happened with Webb, this is a very important distinction. Webb's career been ruined. If you look at the circumstances of when Gary Webb committed suicide, there was really, I mean, for the agency to want to, to supposedly assassinate this guy, 
on the day that he was moving out of his house that he had to sell because he couldn't afford alimony, couldn't afford his mortgage, had to move in with his mom. His motorcycle had been destroyed. He had or stolen. His career had been destroyed. Uh, he wasn't going to work. He was depressed. He was off his meds. He was telling people he was suicidal. He sent letters to everybody. I mean, there's no evidence there. All the evidence is to the contrary. You look at Jeffrey Epstein, <laughs> you know, I, there's obviously a lot of wild theories out there, but the general fact is, is that this person clearly knew a lot. And then he died under very suspicious circumstances. Quite obviously the timing was, yeah. Yeah. yeah just, just right. The timing. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> what, um, sp- speaking of, of what happened to Gary. So at what point, cause his editors originally sign off on this uh, and then they back away. At what point do they turn around? And w- what is the, the straw that broke the camel's back for his firing? Well, he kept, Gary really didn't, you know, take no for an answer. And he was really frustrated that he wasn't being given more opportunity to publish on this. And so he was trying to write follow-ups to this story and they weren't getting published. Um, and I remember interviewing him at the time and he actually would you know, tell myself and other people that were writing about the story, but also covering the the controversy, you know, quite publicly that his editors were quote unquote cowardly. And so that certainly didn't win him any favors. And I think it just kind of hastened this process where they wouldn't let him write about it. They assigned another reporter to sort of try to duplicate his work and to write something else so that they could have a little bit of editorial distance between Gary and the story. And so that basically didn't go anywhere. I mean, you had a situation and it's actually depicted in the movie where, you know, where this other reporter is trying to find people in Central America. He doesn't have the sources down there that Gary did. He doesn't even know who to call. So it just sort of didn't go anywhere. And and meanwhile, Gary is kind of like being very public about his frustration about this. and, And the pressure is like, you know, getting bigger and bigger. So after they published this uh, retraction letter. He was not fired, but he was reassigned to a very small bureau way far away from Sacramento, which is where he lived with his family in the Bay Area in Cupertino down in Silicon Valley, close to the, the headquarters of the paper in San Jose. And that pretty much hastened his departure from the paper and daily journalism. So he just basically um, quit uh, and resigned um, effectively from the paper, ultimately, just because of personal reasons and, and out of frustration over his career having fallen apart over the story. And he wanted other newspapers when they saw this story to join in and sort of, you know, throw their resources at the problem. Uh, why did they not do that? Why did they decide to attack him instead? Well, it's complicated. That's basically what I kind of lay out in the book. I mean, it was there was a lot of different reasons why. I mean, some people looked at this story. There was a lot. Here's what you have to understand is that Gary, you know, he was a pretty hotshot investigative reporter and he, he had been around the block and everything, but he'd never written about any of this stuff before. Right. And so there were a lot of reporters that, that had become editors by the time his story came out at these elite papers that back in the 80s had covered this stuff directly. And they looked at it like this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. One of them, I remember, used the expression that, you know, there was nothing that was new, that was true. And what was new, you know, what was old, you know, had already been kind of written about it, you know, is the way he put it. So there was a lot of people that felt like, you know, who is this 
guy to come in here, you know, and publish this story, making all these accusations, because to us, you know, this has already been written about. But if you look back, if you really parse that out, most of the daily newspapers that covered the Iran-Contra affair didn't really get the drug story straight. It really hadn't been fully explored. You know, it had been written about, sure, but it had been buried by these newspapers, you know. Um, there were some reporters, um, Robert Perry, a uh, very significant, uh, you know, expose that he did with Brian Barger when both of them were at the Associated Press that their editors tried to keep from running. Um, it was the first story that basically quoted from like an internal CIA document saying that the agency was well aware that, you know, that the Contras were neck deep in, in drug running. And this was in 1985. This is like happening at the time, if you can imagine, you know, so that was very explosive. And the editors that read this were like, you know, we're not going to publish this, you know, because they felt pressured by their relationship, you know, with the CIA and with the Reagan White House. This is like a whole mindset that's very, you know, embarrassing for, for the, the profession of, 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 of journalism to acknowledge. But that's what happened. And so they only somehow the Latin, the foreign affairs desk didn't get the memo that they weren't supposed to publish this. It was translated into Spanish and it ran all over the world in Spanish. And then they, you know, ran in English because they had to pretend like that was supposed to happen and it wasn't a big mistake. Right. So what, what ultimately happened though, is that these guys got kind of, you know, pressured out of doing follow-ups to that, you know, Robert Perry and Brian Barger, both, you know, were unable to continue that line of work. And, you know, they were being told by their editors, point blank, don't go after this. You know, this isn't like, why this isn't what, well, here's, here's the best I can, I can do, I think, to help shed light on it. Um, When I, when I wrote this other book, Spooked, my most recent book, I took a look back at a lot of this work. And among other things that I read was Veil by Bob Woodward. Bob Woodward is considered sort of like, you know, the hero of this brave era of investigative reporting, like a super aggressive press, right? But in his book, uh, Veil, which is about Iran-Contra, he details like how most of the scoops that he got, uh, you know, on that story, while people like Bob Perry and Brian Barger were like running around dodging bullets in Central America, as it were, trying to pursue these stories, he was just having cocktails with the Bill Casey, Reagan's CIA director, who just told him what they were doing. And then, then he would tell his editor um uh, and uh you know and they just agreed we're not going to publish it uh and the quote was um you know uh this is reagan's time now you know you know we we used to do this now we're not we're going to let this president kind of do what he's doing for a while and just like work on other stuff because they they have the washington post in particular so embedded in in the power the center of, of U.S. foreign policy and the nation's capital that it's depending uh, for the bulk of its big work on all this access to people and sources and so forth. And so they kind of pick and choose what stories they're going to publish. And this trend continues all the way down the line uh, today, um, which was the focus of Spooked, how that relationship sort of evolved and the myth of this aggressive press that we have. Because you know, there's a, a whole bunch of really important examples about privacy, obviously, you know, a lot of the stuff that happened with Snowden being leaked information was because other newspapers weren't really willing to take this stuff and, and publish it. And, and reporters uh, at the New York Times, who I spoke to, 
you know, would write a story and it, it would almost get published. They'd sit on it, you know, for like a year or two. Like it's too close to the election to publish something so critical of the Bush administration, for example, that kind of thing. Yeah, and these are these are executive level decisions. And so, you know, you have to look at it case by case. But basically, um, you know, it's a power dynamic that goes all the way down into the newsroom level. And so reporters, whether they're Gary Webb or other people at other newspapers like Bob Woodward, it all depends on how aggressive they're willing to be, what their relationship is with their editors, and then how how willing their editors are to back up you know, their reporters and not bow to pressure from phone calls from the White House or from the CIA asking them, well, don't publish this. This is going to put American lives in danger, that kind of thing. Well, it, it's interesting to hear you say this, especially coming after four years of a Trump White House, where uh, a lot of the um, like cable news hosts and those kinds of journalists would get um, very, um, uh, you know, verbose about how how much they're shaking their fists at, at the White House. Uh, did you sense any real change there in terms of how they like the, the process you described of sitting on stories, et cetera? Well, I mean, the, the whole theme, you know, with with Trump and with the way the press pivoted on that, to me, sort of cemented this this this, this relationship, the symbiotic relationship between the elite media and the press, because basically, you know, even back when you had like the, the New York Times and Judith Miller, for example, publishing these bogus stories about weapons of mass destruction um, in Iraq, which turned out not to be true. You had people within the CIA at different levels also trying to counteract that. You know what I mean? There's, there's a, it's a very complex web of relationships. And, 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 and there were a lot of reporters that went after this WMD story, trying to debunk it once the CIA realized at an executive level that their intelligence, which they, they have to provide, if the Bush administration or the Trump administration or the Biden administration asked for an intelligence estimate about something, is this true or not? They have to like pretty much say, here's what we know. You know what I mean? And like whether a lot of it turns out to be crap, <laughs> you know, is sort of, you know, a fair question, but they have to provide it. It's what's done with that on a policy level that ultimately becomes very tricky. And so once people at the executive level of the of the intelligence world realize that their reporting on this weapons of mass destruction issue is going to like lead to an invasion, even though it wasn't really convincing, you know, then they started reaching out. And so that that trend really reached, I think, like a fever pitch with with um, with when, you know, with the relationship between the press and the intelligence community under Trump, because Trump was such a disruptor and there were so many, you know, um, very clear um, breakdowns in the chain of command, you know, like his, he was dictating foreign policy willy nilly via tweet or just, you know, public statements through the media, through social media uh, before he was, you know, giving any direction that was actually filtering down to any of these agencies. So you had like a, a huge, cadre of sources that were already pretty tight with the media to a certain extent, but to the extent they weren't, they became much more willing, I think, to, um, to go public or at least to go through these channels to try to voice their concerns about, about what Trump was doing or not doing, you know what I mean? Because they really didn't have much else they could do when you look at it. Well, well did you also feel um, 
there have been polls recently, and we're talking a lot about the, the CIA and things like that. There have been polls recently that show, particularly among uh, Democrats, that groups like the CIA and the FBI have their esteem has risen a lot over the past four years. And some are suggesting that uh, this is kind of ironic because people would always say, you know, the, the lefties were the anti-CIA people. Um, right. Did Was that a phenomenon that, that struck you as being ironic at all? Oh, completely. Since when are the FBI like the good guys? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, I mean, just as a, as a reporter, you know, going back the last 25 years, I mean, to me, the FBI has often been very bungling, uh, but also nefarious. I mean, it has a very nefarious history. Um, it's obviously changed over the years, um, but, you know, especially since 9-11. See, the way I look at it, I think it's really more of a, just kind of a, I think, to a certain degree, just a kind of apolitical um you know, reality is that the, the level of power, the level of secrecy has just so dramatically exploded since 9-11 that you've just got a huge steroid injection to the to secrecy and to, to the intelligence community in terms of access, power, budget, you know, lack of oversight, all this kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, the FBI... Uh, obviously, you know, it was under a tremendous amount of pressure to make sure there was never like another, you know, terrorist attack on the level of uh, 9-11 within the United States. But I mean, it, it kind of had carte blanche to really do a lot of terrible stuff when it came to, you know, framing people, for example, in bogus terrorist plots and things like that. So as a reporter, I dug into a lot of that stuff. I mean, you had just ridiculous uh, situations where, they had a, an informer that went into the mosques in Southern California, which the, which the FBI had, you know, promised the Islamic community they were not going to do this, but they went ahead and did it. And this informer basically built a whole terrorism case that completely fell apart. And then, you know, the, the kind of key moment when it, when it fell apart was when the, you know, the mosque officials called the FBI and said, you've really got to like interview this person because he sounds like a terrorist. And it was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and there were just dozens of examples of this kind of stuff, you know, and so, and the same thing with the CIA, I mean, uh, the tour, the torture um, since 9-11, you know, all these scandals. I mean, the media has done a, a certain degree of good work reporting on this and everything like that. But I think the general public, because of Trump being, you know, so determined to attack all the institutions of power in the United States and obviously doing so in such a, you know, such a, I'm, I'm searching for objective terminology here, which is difficult yeah, when it yeah, comes yeah. to Trump. So I don't want to belabor the spectacular fashion. It's such a spectacular fashion, <laughs> indeed. You know, because of that, obviously, and attacking these agencies directly. You know what I mean? Like calling the FBI. Like if Trump calls the FBI nefarious, automatically a large segment of people are going to believe that, and automatically an even larger segment of people are more likely going to feel more sympathetic to the FBI just because it's Trump saying it, right? It's the same thing with the Wuhan lab thing. I mean, it turns out there might be something to this, but because Trump was so busy making wild accusations about it, you know, I think it discouraged a lot of, you know, legitimate inquiry into it, most likely. Who knows? You know, truth of that one's still out there. And so, again, it, you know, there's a nuance to all this. It's very difficult to keep a level head when it comes to, you know, um, when it comes to judging the intelligence community in the Trump era. You know what I mean? There's certainly, obviously... 
a lot of <laughs> a lot of confusion in the American public that's being manipulated both sides of that question big time. Um, and, and I'm I'm curious, kind of uh, wrapping up with Gary Webb. Do you, mm. at, having written this book now, a movie's come out based on it. Um, uh, I, I I'm sure it's satisfying on a, a, as a journalist on a professional level. Uh, personally, is it emotionally satisfying at all? Do Do you feel like you, in some ways, helped vindicate this guy? I mean, it it was emotionally satisfying to me to see the reaction that it got within journalism to the extent that it forced, you know, albeit very late in the game, some kind of acknowledgement of how they had mishandled this, and, on, and especially also reappraising. Gary Webb on a human level, you know, and, and, and when you think about, you know, the kinds of fabrications and fabulism that, that, that there are legionary, you know, examples of within media, the Stephen glasses of the world, Judith Miller, all these other things where you have examples of reporters either just completely making things up out of whole cloth or writing stories where they're just like completely buying hook, line and sinker, you know, very questionable, uh, material that gets hyped up by power, you know, powerful newspapers that are much more influential than, you know, Gary Webb and the San Jose Mercury News and the consequences of that reporting being disastrous, you know, and like lethal for millions of people. Like you look back on what he tried to do and you realize that whatever faults there were to it, I mean, it was largely a very solid story. It was mis, you know, uh, mishandled by the mainstream press and then you lost a major opportunity to really have a, a big reckoning on the war of drugs. And only it, it, to me, I look at that as a, a real, you know, kind of warning, you know, sort of like a, uh, a, you know, a story that I think highlights the dangers of the press, you know, attacking one of its own at the expense of doing its job and then burying things culturally um, that ended up, you know, being impossible to bury. You look at, you look at like what happened with George Floyd with the Black Lives Matter movement. These, you know, the African American community that reacted the way it did, you know, was largely ridiculed, I think, and and sort of patronized by the mainstream press on the on the crack cocaine story. Certainly, some people were way out there, you know, claiming that the CIA invented drugs, but not every. It's t totally not fair to say that to any real important degree that that was true by and large of the African-American community as a whole. I mean, it was just more like an emotional reaction that like, you know, finally somebody's taking this seriously. And so that's why they saw Gary as a hero. And so, you know, I think that it's interesting to see like how now the media is bending over backwards, I think, to try to address on an institutional level its own you know, kind of shortcomings historically going all the way back well beyond Gary Webb. But certainly, you know, that's a part of that narrative, uh, just how patronizing and I think too, too willing to uh, do too little, you know, like I, I've to me, like I, I've covered so many police brutality stories in my career that I mean, I, I, I can't think of it, you know, any reason why anybody should have ever been shocked whatsoever about what happened with George Floyd or, you know, any of these other terrible stories like that, that suddenly became news. I mean, this is stuff was happening all along everywhere, you know, and it was really just, you know, finally, 
obviously cell phones being invented and, 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 and the pressure of the Black Lives Matter movement to really make this um, into like an actual movement, you know, not just a series of tragedies, but like, you know, um, something that couldn't be ignored that forced the media to do its job. And that's, you know, I, I think it's very important to, to, to not forget that this is not new, you know what I mean? That no matter how much, uh, you know, the media is doing its job now, this is way, way late in the game, um, you know, for a lot of people. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and do you feel that um, if, if this story happened today, that this it would have encountered the same resistance uh, among the press? No, I certainly, well, I certainly can't imagine the press going off on this story the way they did uh, uh, back in the 90s at all. No, not not at all. Um, you know, and, and that's a good thing, certainly. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm very conflicted about about the, the the press, you know, as an inst- it's impossible to generalize for me. I mean, it's such a, a it's such an important, critical institution at the same time. It can be so maddening the more you realize, you know, uh, the, the, the behind the scenes of the whole thing and, and just how inherently um, I, I hesitate to use the word corrupt, but compromised the press is. I mean, it is a very tricky industry because there's so much uh, reliance on access to power uh, and, and, act, and, and, and so much built in filtering of the news that it, it makes it very difficult for the press to actually do its own job. Now, it's, it's very, very important to get facts straight. It should be something that's deliberate and very careful. But there has been, I think, an over tendency within the press for far too long to try to push problems aside that, that simply are right out there in plain view for people to see if you just do your job. And if you have the resources to do it again, which is like the critical thing. I mean, America needs a functioning press with investigative reporting. And when we talk about the press, to a large degree, we're not talking about investigative reporting at this point. Very little of it is being done overall. Yeah, that's going to make you really nervous, right? Well, it does. I mean, (laughs) as a reporter, uh, you know, I say this, you know, and it's a very personal thing for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, um, you know, it's a very tough industry. There's, uh, you know, in Spooked, I tried to focus to as much extent as I could on the good work that's being done, because there are very good reporters at some of these elite newspapers, but there's also new, you know, sources of media as well um, that, that that's also doing important work. Um, and so I'm actually very optimistic just because I think that the search for truth is something that is going to continue to be there. Uh, both on behalf of the public and on behalf of people uh, that are, you know, young and looking to sort of make sense of this world. And so I don't think that journalism is going to die as a profession necessarily. It's just that the way stories are told and the question of, you know, how to sustain this um, is very fraught with dilemmas, you know, economically, structurally, and so forth. And so whether or not you can make a living doing this is like an open question, but I think it's certainly important. People are always going to want to read um, really important investigative work. It's just a question of how to pay for it and how to celebrate it and how to, you know, how to, how to 
um, try to foster that culture that are, I think, really kind of critical questions for the, you know, for the, for the present and future. Yeah, there's, I, I, I normally, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't like to go longer than an hour because after an hour, I think people sort of uh, drift into, you know, outer space. Um, but I, I wish we had more time because I would love to ask you about the Weed Runners, Orange Sunshine. Orange Sunshine. I haven't read Spooked, um, but I saw, uh, I saw it. Um, and this is your latest book. Maybe could you tell us what, what is Spooked about? It seems to be kind of like a history of your um, involvement with journalism. And with yeah, Spooked is basically a look at how the you know how the intelligence community has basically manipulated both the the print media the press and hollywood and so i have people both in the agency ex-officials and and current spokespeople for the agency as well as as reporters uh independent investigative reporters and people working at the elite media institutions talking about this in detail for sort of the first time you know going into a lot of very interesting territory about this this very fraught relationship but it also takes a historical look and looks back on how this came about and it does deal with the you know both with the 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 vietnam war era which is when finally you know you had the press kind of standing up to power for the first time in this country and then how that sort of was short-lived and by the reagan era basically started fracturing um, and then how everything changed after 9-11 in terms of this whole power dynamic. And so it's a pretty quick book uh, and very journalistic, very, I think, easy to read. And I'm, you know, I'm hoping that in reading this, people will get a much better understanding of what the press in Hollywood is actually all about when it comes to their relationship with the intelligence world. And I think it's very timely, you know, especially I wrote it just as Trump was, <laughs> just as the, the Trump election happened. And so it's, it, it certainly says a lot about the dynamic that was in place when he was elected, and it informs a lot of what happened since then. Yeah, it's, it's always fascinating when you hear in the like e-news, like, oh, the, you know, the Defense Department helped out the producers of Zero Dark Thirty. And uh, oh, yeah, isn't that fun? I have a, <laughs> yeah, I have a whole chapter on Zero Dark Thirty. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what was the deal there? Did the CIA feed them like information uh, that torture helped them find bin Laden? What, what happened? Yeah, that was the, they, they did that. They basically knew that this movie was going to get made. They knew that there was a big search by Hollywood to try to tell the story. So they basically made it their mission to figure out which project was going to get there first and how to basically woo those people into telling this story the way they wanted it told. Whereas previously, and I go into a lot of detail about this in Spook, the agency had a very kind of hands-off <clears throat> relationship with Hollywood, you know, and since the 1990s had started to kind of rehabilitate, try to sort of be a little bit more proactive in rehabilitating their image. But this was like, you know, off the reservation. And so you basically had you know, whining and dining of the CIA going on on behalf of the director and screenwriter of that movie, exchanges of gifts, you know, all kinds of access. And I interviewed, you know, officials at the agency that were basically like trying to hide their faces walking through the hall because you never knew what like Hollywood actor you were going to get just bump into because people were being given this unprecedented access to Langley. So it was very unusual. And obviously, you know, uh, as it turned out, like, that movie got a lot of really important things wrong. Um, 
uh, you know, and it was because the agency was very adept at what it did because it has a long history of doing this. Do you, do you have a hard time not being paranoid? Oh boy. I, it, it was funny because I actually went to Langley to interview the press, t- you know, um, handlers, the people that work directly with the media, the media relations department at the agency for this book, which I thought was surprising given the, the books that I've written. Um, and when we sat down, there was a scene in Kill the Messenger where Gary Webb is having a similar type meeting with unnamed government people. And one of them says, you know, we'd never you know, harm your family or something to that extent. And they were joking with me that they were going to try to say something like that to me just as a, you know, uh, as a funny joke. And, um, you know, (laughs) just joking. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha ha. (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting. I, you know, what can I say? I know that they're, uh, they, you know, at least they let me go uh, you know, ask them some very important questions. I, and, uh, you know, make of their answers what you will, but their, their own history um, publication that reviews books gave my book spooked a very negative review <laughs> saying it was, uh, you know, full of uh, hearsay and so forth. When everything based, you know, everything that I wrote was based on, you know, documented incidents and historical facts. So yeah. anyways, I'm glad they didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it'd be weird if they gave it a, you know, five stars. Exactly. Yes. I feel like I did my job. Um, so where can people find you? Uh, well, I'm working in Santa Barbara nowadays. Um, I'm freelancing. Uh, I'm working as a consultant on some Hollywood projects as well, uh, relating to Orange Sunshine. Um, so you can find me on Amazon at the moment. And uh and hopefully other projects going forward in the future. But I, I left full-time journalism after uh, the paper that I was at for 25 years, quarter of a century, you know, was basically uh, just put to bed uh, by its final owner and another victim in the seemingly endless string of newspapers that have fallen victim to the, the uh, decline of print journalism. But it was a good run while it lasted. Are you gonna are you gonna start a Substack? <laughs> I'm tempted. <laughs> I hear there's a lot of money to be made. It's possible, I suppose. I, I started <laughs> one. I haven't made any money, so I'm joking. <laughs> but in your case, you you actually have some bona fides, so you might you might be able to get something going. But um, well, listen, well, we'll see. I appreciate you talking to me, and um, it's been great having a chance to talk about this stuff because to me, that's what it's all about. It's really, I think, it's super important. Um, to shine a light uh, on the dark side of journalism. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm glad that there's an opportunity for people to get more familiar with some of this stuff. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Nick, it was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. All righty. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Nick Scow, and thank you for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.